0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris. Christmas is nearly here. Time to unwind and spend time with the family. Or for Rishi Sunak, a chance to get away from the five families. Yes, that's how five groups of right-wing conservative rebels now brand themselves. And they haven't been making life easy for the Prime Minister. His immigration bill has made its way through the Commons after much posturing from unhappy MPs. And no doubt, after plenty of pleading from government whips. But is the real fight still to come? We'll take a look at where this week's events leave the Prime Minister's plans after a dramatic few days in Parliament. Luckily for the Prime Minister, he got to spend Monday away from Westminster. Unluckily for the Prime Minister, he had to spend Monday giving evidence to the Covid inquiry in Paddington. So how did he do and what did we learn? And finally, as Parliament shuts up shop for the festive period, we'll round up the week's other events and take a quick look ahead to 2024. So we've got plenty to talk about. Throughout, I'm going to be joined by IFG's Alex Thomas, fresh from our Christmas party and skillfully dodging the winter bugs flying around the office. Hi, Alex. How are you feeling this morning?
1: I'm feeling very well, thank you. I'm not sure there's much skill to do with it, but um, uh, yes, I'm so far feeling all right. Thanks, Emma. I'm
0: glad to hear it. I'm delighted that we're also joined today by a friend of the IFG, Esther Webber, Politico's senior UK correspondent. Hi, Esther. Are you ready for Christmas?
2: Hi, hey, Emma. Uh, no, not remotely. I think once. Parliamentary recess begins, then I, I start preparing.
0: <laughs> yep, similar story here. Okay, let's start with the uh, the drama in Parliament this week, though in the end it wasn't actually that dramatic. Esther, the bill passed, was that inevitable in the end?
2: I don't think it was inevitable. Like On the day there was still uh, a real question mark over which way people were going to go but then again there is there is always some expectation management going on with these things so obviously it suited the government to brief that it could be very close and it could be sort of disastrous for the government just to sort of give people pause for thought but but yes I do think that ultimately Tory MPs were unlikely to go through the lobbies with Labour on the flagship immigration policy, no matter the strength of feelings. Uh, we also saw by how many MPs did not vote.
0: So is this a, a masterful victory then from Sunak, or uh, or something quite different to that?
2: I wouldn't mean, quite go that far. I mean, I think there was some self congratulation going on afterwards. Some backslapping among the whips and Rishi Sinag's kind of backroom team. But some of the stories we've heard since sort of put question marks over some of the whipping tactics that we used, even in terms of things like apparently expending um, a lot of time and effort on MPs who'd already been very clear about how they were going to vote. And that's the kind of thing that they shouldn't particularly get a gold star for.
0: And I've got to ask about the uh, the five families. Who are they and who came up with that name?
2: So they are five different groupings of conservative MPs on the back benches. The sort of original trailblazer was the ERG, which obviously goes back a long way uh, and it seems as though since then other sort of loose groupings have felt we want a piece of that action and influence um, and so they've also formed into more coherent groupings sort of semi-formal in that some of them received donations and they are also the new conservatives who are led by Danny Kruger, and Miriam Cates, who are two MPs elected in 2019. There's also the Northern Research Group, led by Jake Berry, which aims to represent the interests of Northern Conservative MPs. There is a running out of <laughs> the families now. God, um, there's the Common Sense Group, which is John Hayes's outfit and again they're on the right and mainly they're very concerned with kind of clamping down on wokeism as they see it and then the fifth one is the conservative growth coalition and that's the home nowadays for a lot of the MPs who are in Liz Truss's government who still think the government isn't doing enough to boost growth. And I'll leave it there before I think of any other other MPs vying for our attention.
0: Congratulations on being able to name all five. Uh, So second reading, um, Hurdle Jumped Over by Sunak, what happens next?
2: So there are obviously some big hurdles still to come for... This legislation. At one point, I understand there was a plan or at least an intention to try and get through Commons stages before Christmas. That seems to have been jettisoned. And now there will be a a charm offensive or otherwise over the next few weeks as the government tries to convince the party at large to back the bill. Um, Even though it passed comfortably, there were some strong objections from both sides, uh, both on the right, from people who think it doesn't go far enough and it's still open to human rights challenges and on the left or the centrist wing of the Tory party who thinks that this goes too far in disapplying our international obligations. So, so there is going to be an effort to try and sell the bill to, to those groups to potentially see whether there is any scope for tightening, um, as has been mentioned, um, and then it will come back for closer scrutiny at committee and report stage. But then, of course, there is another big hurdle ahead, which is the House of Lords, which maybe we can talk about separately.
0: Alex, writing in the New Statesman, former Conservative MP David Gork says the Conservative centrists, the One Nation group, have ended up comprising in a way which, in the end, is actually going to cause the Prime Minister problems with the right of his party.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm still just sort of very pleased you didn't ask me to name the five families. Uh, so <laughs> thank you, Esther, for taking the uh, taking the hit on the on on that one. I guess, I mean, I'll come back to, to David Gork in a second, but uh, I guess on the on the five families point, if you were, and this is just on one side of the uh, of the Conservative Party, as you said, the, the One Nation group is on the sort of centrist centre-right side. If you were a political party going to whatever the equivalent of a GP is for political parties, and they were looking for kind of red flags for your health, a red flag would be splintering into different factions, different groups, uh, as we've seen in the Labour Party in the past and the Conservative Party at the moment. So I guess the sort of big picture uh, in the politics is that this is just you know, very bad news for the Conservative Party and its ability to govern and cohere and campaign for a general election. So whatever the merits or otherwise on the specific policy, this is this is you know a huge headache for um, Rishi Sunak.
0: And do you see that changing, Alex? I mean, do you think that is this, are we going to see more division over the months to come? Or is there any chance that the Conservative Party is going to kind of, you know, come back together ahead of a general election?
1: I think the imminence of a general election will inevitably impose a little bit of discipline and the closer you get to the campaign the stronger the arguments for you know hang together rather than hanging separately become but when a party has lost a will to cohere it's very hard to recover uh, that and i also think the the electoral dynamics uh, also work in the opposite direction, which is that if you're a Conservative MP with a marginal seat who thinks that they're going to lose come what may, then what have you got to lose from saying what you really think, working out the best plan for your future career? If you're a Conservative MP who might stand a chance to retain their seat, if there's a decent result, you might decide that it's in your interest to try and distinguish yourself and therefore start rebelling more. So Whereas other MPs will, of course, think, "Well, we better, uh, better be loyal and hang together." But it, I don't think it's as simple as just saying an election's coming, and therefore the party will start to unify. I mean, on the on the David Gort point, it's a really interesting article. I think it is the case that obviously the One Nation Conservative Group are the ones who are prepared to compromise. It is certainly the case that on issue after issue after issue, the right wing of the Conservative Party are moving that, you know, sort of the dreaded phrase, phrase the, the Overton window, the kind of the, the the terms of reference, the parameters for political debate. And so what is playing out now would have been unthinkable uh, 10 years ago. And so uh, that, that sort of series of concessions are definitely changing the centre of balance of the Conservative Party. That said, I'm not sure I can understand the reasons tactically why the One Nation Group might have chosen not to make a big stand now, not least because my suspicion, famous last words, my suspicion is that at least in the Commons, the moment of maximum jeopardy for the Prime Minister and the government is over. Through committee stage, as Esther was saying, the amendments would tend to be, if they're to toughen up the legislation, the Labour Party presumably won't vote for them. If they're to dilute the legislation, then that's a headache for the government in the other direction. But goes in the direction the One Nation caucus might want. There is this moment at third reading in the Commons, but will the tension have sort of dissipated a little by then? It does feel like the moment of maximum jeopardy on the, on, on, on the bill in the Commons has gone. And so actually then you get into the Lords. And as Esther said, maybe we can come to that in a, in a bit, but that's a different ballgame.
0: Um, where's labour in all of this?
1: doing the old maxim, don't interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake, trying to develop enough of a position on immigration uh, and asylum to say that they you know, they have a plan and they have a kind of basket of measures that would uh, help. But um, Keir Starmer has been very clear that he does not support the Rwanda scheme. Uh, he would not implement it, even if it got through, um, he would repeal it if a Labour government came in. So that gives them quite a coherent position. And as we've seen with, governments where their majorities are fragile in the past, it is almost always in the interest of the opposition to cause trouble. And so even where there might be some sort of question about whether Labour does or doesn't support individual policies, the temptation to inflict a defeat on the government is so great that, that almost always they would they would go with that.
0: Esther, Sunak's also been making the headlines today by insisting that he's not tetchy. Is he tetchy?
2: <laughs> uh, it's one of those... Um, Reminds me of this, of Lyndon B. Johnson thing, the strategy of making your opponent deny something. But yes, the, the very fact that he's sort of being asked about this, I think, is telling my colleague, Alan L Dixon, wrote a very good piece about this a few weeks ago. Um, because it is something that people have noticed, something around him, that he gets a bit grumpy. And this is particularly noticeable in sort of live questioning by broadcasters, but also people in Number 10 report that he has been grumpy over the various frustrations experienced by the Rwanda policy and kind of getting bogged down in that. And I think some Tories also fear that this could become worse on the campaign trail during an election where you're very tired, your patience is being tested every day. Um, And I think someone we spoke to for that piece said there's a difference between politicians who take energy from those around them and kind of draw on that as a strength and those who who find it quite draining. And so we will see it which he is. But he obviously denies this and he but he did accept that he gets frustrated when things aren't going his way, Um, and I think his team will hope that maybe the voters can buy into that to some extent, because perhaps they would feel the same, but I don't know if that's really going to wash in the long campaign.
1: And I... I hesitate to raise Prime Minister's Question Time because it's such a sort of inside Westminster thing uh, and real people don't follow it and don't watch it quite rightly. Um, But it is striking that um, in the bubble, he's had two now quite tricky Prime Minister's Question Times where one, Keir Starmer was throwing around lots of sort of jokes and, uh, uh, and, and made him look uncomfortable, and another one this week where the Prime Minister did seem to misjudge the tone and was very much sort of on the attack when he could have been more empathetic and that does, that does strike someone who's not uh, in the kind of calmest possible place to, to, to respond to each situation in a way that, that kind of meets the moment.
0: And he's had more bad news with a potential by-election, Alex.
1: Yes, well, a, cu- a couple actually. I mean, there's, there's a recall petition open at the moment, which will close, I think, in, a, in, a, in about a week's time next week in Wellingborough, where Peter Bone, the MP, was sanctioned by the Standards Committee. And then we had another Standards Committee report today from Scott Benton, who's the MP for Blackpool South recommending suspension of 35 days. If that's voted on by the Commons uh, and approved by the Commons, and he is suspended for 35 days, that would trigger another recall petition, which, as these things go, tend to lead to a by-election, which, given Scott Benton only has a majority of about 3,700 would look like it would be another uh, another uh, by-election defeat for the Conservative Party. So a little way to run on that, but it's just a, a reminder of this kind of drumbeat of scandal and, um, uh, and dare I say, sleaze that, that, that has, has played out.
0: OK, let's turn to Rishi Sunak's COVID inquiry appearance now. It was a tough day for the Prime Minister. He was forced to defend the Eat Out to Help Out plan, as we knew he would be, to explain the Treasury's thinking, um, which often seemed at odds with the health department's preferences during the pandemic. We're now joined by our senior economist, Ollie Bartram, who, appropriately enough, is at home after testing positive for COVID. Hi, Ollie, how are you feeling?
3: Hi, Emma. Not too bad, thank you.
0: Ollie, both the Prime Minister and Hugo Keith um, Casey, who questioned him, seem to draw a straight trade-off between public health outcomes on one hand and then the economy on the other. But I know that you've argued something quite different.
3: Yeah, sure. So I think it's worth starting by saying that figuring out how to respond to a pandemic is extremely difficult. Uh, and it's important to be clear that there are trade-offs to be made and there will be disagreement and argument between government ministers and officials. That's that's quite right. Um, but what's really crucial is how ministers understood the nature of the trade-offs that they were facing. And based on all of our research and what we saw at the inquiry, we think that Sunak always saw restrictions as bad for the economy. Um, So if you just look at their point of impacts, they are bad for the economy. You're restricting economic interactions. You're sometimes closing down entire sectors. Of course, you want to avoid that if if you don't need to. But it's a mistake to think that they're always bad. That's because... There's another factor, transmission of the disease, that is also really bad for the economy. So amid high levels of transmission, people would avoid going out uh, to spend money or to go to work um, because of fear of the virus. So you want to be in control of the pandemic in order to help the economy. So there are some situations in which even if you only cared about the economy, you'd want to impose restrictions. But Sunak's answers revealed to us that he generally always advised against them um, on the basis of economic cost, informed by Treasury advice. And I could find no reference to him or his officials at any point asking the question of whether getting ahead of transmission would be good for the economy, which is what we think they should have been doing. And I guess what's sort of most frustrating is that Hugo Keith KC, the lawyer questioning him, on multiple occasions made quite forceful assertions uh, that Sunak was right to be doing this. I think the worst example that I picked out was uh, he spoke of Eat Out to help out having a clear economic advantage. Obviously, if it encourages disease transmission, that's not the case.
0: So on the one hand, you know, we've got the Treasury led by Sunak pushing um, this kind of binary between health and economy. But actually, it felt like the inquiry questioning was doing, uh, was doing the same thing, falling into the same trap. For Sunak, how do you think we ended up in a place where there was this tug of war between the Treasury and the health department? Why didn't Sunak understand the, the kind of point you, you make so clearly?
3: I think ultimately we don't really know, and I wish, I wish this is what we'd heard much more about during Sunak's hearing. I guess you can easily fall into the trap of thinking, well, the hearing should have been all about the things that I think are important. <laughs> but, but I think this is this this issue is fundamentally important. To understanding why decision making went wrong, I think, as we argue in our, in the report we released on Treasury and COVID. This sort of lack of appreciation of the complexity of the trade-offs is ultimately what undermines um, decision-making. I think there are a couple of reasons why we think this tug-of-war may have happened. One is just that there wasn't really a strong analysis function in the centre to sort of provide a common understanding of, of what was actually happening. Uh, to ministers, and they could then go away and debate what the most appropriate policy response to that is. Ultimately, they'd come to meetings armed with their own facts produced to support their own position. So it might have been this lack of a sort of central uh, analytical function that did emerge in 2021 in the Cabinet Office, and we think probably improved things. So an important lesson for the future could be retaining that strong function in the Cabinet Office. Another one which I Is sort of related is just about the type of analysis that officials provide to ministers. So based on everything that we've seen so far it looks like officials provided Sunak with analysis that supported the views that he formed early on in the pandemic and we didn't really, we haven't really seen much in the way of officials challenging that way of thinking uh, even though all of the evidence on pandemic economics that we've relied on for our report was out there and existed and was definitely available to Treasury officials at that point. So it's those those questions about internally within departments, how is analysis transformed into advice? Is there any bias in that? And then how departments come together? Does there need to be a stronger function there? Could be either of those, probably both.
0: Esther, I mean, eat out to help out is a policy, a scheme that's very heavily associated with SUNAC. Personally, how do you think history will, will will judge that?
2: I mean, I think that seems like it's fortunate in a way that many people see this as such kind of traumatic or even depressing time in their lives that they quite want to draw a veil over it, and they are maybe not going to dwell on it as much as if, say, it had been one or two years ago that this has taken place. I also think he is in a slightly strange position in that really the thing that made his name as a chancellor and, you know, in theory helped a lot of people uh, survive the pandemic in terms of furlough and bailouts for businesses that those are things he can't can't or doesn't want to really talk about anymore. So it's interesting that sort of the big interventions he made are not really something he can claim credit for. And part of that is also to do with the E out, to help out and his legacy, because he he would just rather not draw attention to that whole area.
0: Alex, we've had lots of big names up now. We had Johnson last week. There's been so much anticipation for this module in particular. Do you think it's kind of lived up to uh, to, to what it was supposed to achieve or has there been too much focus on kind of individual personalities and uh, and kind of private conversations rather than the the kind of lessons that we might be able to learn?
1: Yeah, it's interesting and it's it's also striking that, you know, I think not coincidentally with Boris Johnson's appearance, the the drumbeat of criticism of the inquiry from, uh, you know, Johnson-friendly bits of the media has uh, become more prominent. Uh, and I think obviously it's perfectly legitimate to debate the nature of the inquiry and how it's going about, but I think there may be a little bit, you know, more than meets the eye on, on some of that commentary. I think... Any inquiry like this, as you, actually as you've written a, a lot, Emma, so you know you should should be uh, helping me answer this question. Is juggling multiple, sometimes competing objectives. So there's obviously an objective here of accountability and um, holding those decision makers to account for the decisions that they made, and then looking, you know, find kind of fact finding and working out whether both at the time and with the benefit of hindsight, it was the right thing to do, Um, which links to the second objective, which is lessons learning, uh, and the more kind of systemic analysis of how well the state held up and what this and future governments should do to, uh, to make the state more resilient. And then the third objective is kind of catharsis and the victims and their families and, and so on. And, and I have some sympathy both for the barristers and for Baroness Hallett and the whole inquiry team because they are trying to draw out aspects of all of those objectives and more. There's been a fair amount of critique of too much focus on salacious WhatsApps and things like that, and that may or may not be the case. I do think I think there is value in the WhatsApps. I think you know, we can be over focused on them, but I think it is valuable because it speaks to the state of mind of the decision makers at the time. And I think some of the WhatsApps do illustrate that Boris Johnson's mind was not clear or set, you know, beyond. Natural self-reflection, or testing arguments, or the kind of the case that he was trying to make in his evidence—you know—he was flip-flopping on these things, and his inconsistency of approach did cause real-world problems. And that is useful. That is illustrated by some of the less formal evidence. Uh, I I do hope, uh, as the inquiry draws together more evidence and finishes its report, there is as much or more reliance, on, you know, if it exists, on the um, more formal decision making structures. I think there is a you know, there is a point that during this period, quite a lot of decisions were taken informally and outside the kind of committee structures and so on. But there still must have been submissions from officials, kind of considered advice, uh, uh, as Ollie was saying, the, the economic analysis that uh, uh, went in alongside some of the the sage scientific advice. Uh, and I, I hope we learn um, Plenty about that over the course of the publication of these uh, reports and the modules, as, as well as the kind of you know star turns at the in in, in the witness box.
0: Exactly because I think that's one of the challenges at this phase in an inquiry and particularly a module that has had this much kind of attention because of the nature of people who have been giving giving evidence. It feels like the public hearings are the kind of sum total of the inquiry when actually they're a part of it, a really important part of it, but they're not the only part of the inquiry and actually alongside it there are going to be. Um, lots of people kind of busily um, raking over other forms of, of written evidence um, as part of kind of drawing their conclusions. Ollie, do you think that um some of that other material that no doubt the inquiry team will be uh will be carefully kind of pouring over? Do you think that's going to help them work through some of the challenges you've identified?
3: So, look, I I hope so. Um as as Alex and you have just said, and indeed Baroness Hallett, um all hearings are only a small part of the evidence uh that goes into the final report. They will have at least thousands of pages of written statements to go through. And I very much hope, like Alex does, that they also have access to plenty of internal submissions and analysis where they can go through and answer some of the questions that we posed in our report around what views ministers had and how that led to decision making, how those views were shaped by analysis and advice. Um, So I'm optimistic that we will get, to the bottom of some of the questions in the written report that we didn't in the oral hearings. Um, though I'm, I guess I still have like two concerns. One is the extent to which the line of questioning reveals where the inquiry may have already formed views. Some of the questioning to SUNAC was very strong in terms of the assumptions that were made, um, though obviously Hugo Keith is not writing the final report. Uh, but then the other one is just that there were there are certain things that only oral hearings can do. For example, to figure out what's really going on in uh, these, these ministers' minds, what their views were, where they may have changed at certain points, what will have influenced any changes, whether it's advice from officials, uh, special advisors, other sources so i do think there there were some missed opportunities to really figure out how sunak was thinking about approaching the overall economic policy response to the pandemic what that what a sort of good response looks like uh, and how that was informed by all the various different bits of information that he was getting we didn't really get to the bottom of that but those those two sort of specific concerns aside uh, uh, hopefully hopefully, we'll get answers to much more questions in early 2025.
0: Thanks, Ollie. And Esther, um, as we've said a few times, it's obviously been a kind of series of high-profile witnesses for this module focused on central government decision-making. Are there any witnesses that you've seen that you think have done particularly well at the public hearings?
2: I mean, I, I will confess I haven't been there every day, like our um, Doughty reporter, Andrew, So I wasn't there in person, but I do feel as if I think Richie Sinai's team will be pleased, I think, with the way it went for him because he wasn't necessarily the touchy character that we we spoke about earlier. Um, And he pushed back on some of the assumptions, uh, saying that, you know, actually we... We where we changed our position it was in relation to changing advice from the scientists. Say so he's sort have of got that point across. I think the other standout for me was Helen Magnamara, the deputy um head civil servant, who was I think just really I guess exposing the extent of the kind of toxic atmosphere inside number 10 at the time.
0: Okay. And then we've got module three starting, well, module three hearings starting next year, which will be looking at healthcare systems across the four nations during the pandemic. So I'm sure we'll be talking about the COVID inquiry lots more then. Um, Ollie, thanks for joining us. Get well soon. Okay, let's quickly end by looking at the state of play as the year comes to a close. Esther Sunak's poll ratings are not looking so good, but is his job really vulnerable this close to an election?
2: I don't think so. I would be very surprised. Um, I think a Tory MP described it to me the other day as a suicide wish If if they were to try and force him out. Um, because I think they realise at this point a lot of the public, uh, regardless of their other political feelings, find them ridiculous in terms of the number of personnel changes they've had at the top. Um, so don't think they'll be they'll be willing to risk that.
0: And Labour's poll lead shows no sign of dropping. Keir Starmer made a big speech this week, marking the fourth anniversary of the twenty nineteen general election. Alex, were you watching, and what did you make of it?
1: Uh, I wasn't. I confess, uh, I was aware it was happening, and I saw some of the the briefing around it, and, and obviously the re- the reporting uh, after it. Uh, I mean, I, almost the most interesting thing to me was that he chose to to mark the date. You know, it was it was not a happy day for the Labour Party. Twelfth of December. Uh, 2019 and so the fact that he was confident enough to sort of uh, own the anniversary in that sense and wanted to use it to make the case as how in his view labor has changed was you know was notable and then there were some you know some interesting lines in the in the speech on uh, immigration and and, and the uh, uh, and the broad approach to the um, uh, to the issues of the day that the labor party will will take but I, as I say I thought the main the main point of interest was was the fact of it. You know, there's this sort of drumbeat of questioning around Labour about the extent to which they have a kind of clear policy platform. Are they ready for coming into government? When would they ideally want the election to be? But um, for my part, it was a it was a sign of confidence. And so, while probably won't be you know long remembered, uh, was a kind of a waypoint on the road to to what may happen after the next election.
0: And then the other big story this week was Mark Drakeford resigning as the Welsh Labour leader. Um, do you think it's a significant moment or not so much given Labour's dominance in Wales?
1: It's a significant moment when the when the personalities change. I think I was I was quite struck again by him saying, "You know, I said that I would serve five years. I've served five years. I'm off." In you know, a kind of admirable, um, an admirable commitment to. Keeping promises, and actually, I thought that was one of the notable things about it. I suppose the other thing, you know, politically in in government terms, you're right; it's it's unlikely to change Labour's dominance in Wales, but there is a you know there is a regular Conservative Party attack line that the Labour-run Welsh NHS education system isn't uh, as good as it might be, and I suppose a you know a refreshing of personalities. In Wales allows Keir Starmer to put his front foot forward on that, which is not to you know sort of make no comment on Mark Drakeford's legacy or otherwise. I don't really know I- enough about it, but um, but I think a you know a refreshing of the the political guard in, in in Wales helps blunt that attack a little bit and allows Starmer to say actually you know I have a plan. This is my Labour Party now. Off we go.
0: And Esther, as Parliament rises, we also get what's called taking out the trash day. Uh, what's this about, and does it matter?
2: Uh, Yes, so that is a happy day for political reporters everywhere as they get asked to go through a million written statements and figure out what is newsworthy and what's not so newsworthy. It's basically the last chance before MPs go away for recess for all the departments to publish various things that they've been working on um, and probably promising for a long time, um, and so yeah, it's down to us, the journalists, to kind of go through the the fine print and um, find out what they're trying to keep from us. <laughs>
0: And is there anything you're expecting to uh, to find out for this uh, Take Out the Trash Day?
2: Well, I think the two main things I was looking out for have already landed. So there was the report into the breach of lobbying rules by Scott Benton, which I heard would be coming today. And then also an update to plans for um, excluding MPs who are accused of serious wrongdoing um and that those plans have been published today although i don't think they will be voted on until next year
0: and alex there was some good news from government this week as well at least as uh, far as fans of civil service reform like us at ifg are concerned Uh, i think there was an announcement on relocation
1: Yes, one for the one for the civil servants uh, listening and and those those following this. This was um, it was it was some good news actually. Um, the government said that they were ahead of their target for relocating civil servants out of London, um, and so they've set a more ambitious target. They they were going to uh, try and get twenty two thousand roles uh, out of London by twenty thirty. They've um, brought that. Date a bit earlier to 2027, so they're they're going ahead. They also announced a few new uh, sort of second headquarters of government departments, one in Aberdeen, one in Manchester, and some extra roles going to the Darlington economic uh, campus uh, and you know to other places elsewhere in the uh, in, in in the country. So you know, good news. We've we've written a couple of reports on this, done a case study of the Darlington uh, campus. Generally, very supportive of it. I think the. The risk that we'd highlight, because there's always, you know, always has to be a risk, is that uh, the Darlington campus, in particular, has been overall a success—not an unqualified one, but a success. Um, but it's taken an enormous amount of effort and energy and leadership from ministers and particularly senior civil servants. Darlington is also, you know, quite particularly located with very good transport links, road and rail, kind of north south and west east. And uh, if In upping the ambition here, the government, uh, I'll caricature it a little bit, just sort of starts spraying out as many civil service roles to as many different places as possible without really putting the energy and the effort in, then uh, that would be unfortunate and a a bit of a squandering of the the good progress that has been made so far. They're also not doing quite as well, we think, on senior civil service relocations as they are with the the overall numbers. So those those are two things we'll be keeping an eye on over the next sort of months and years.
0: Alex, you used to be a civil servant. What happens uh, to the civil service or to government at Christmas? Is it a complete shutdown or does somebody uh, draw the short straw and have to be on call on Christmas Day?
1: You know, the, the Christmas decorations go up, and then there's an HR message telling you to take them down, and then there's a Daily Mail story complaining about the HR message. And all you say that's that's one of the things that goes around regular as clockwork. Of course, government doesn't doesn't shut down. It really depends very much uh, the job that you're doing. If you are in a uh, job which is you know unlikely to kick off over um, the Christmas period, then you uh, may get a bit of time off. Equally, it might be a chance to uh, you know, as with all of us, to catch up on things that you uh, uh, that you weren't able to do at busier times of the year if you're a if you're a private secretary or you're working in a very kind of high intensity job it doesn't let up much it calms down a little bit i mean i was re- reminded by um uh i was talking to a colleague about it earlier there was one it was christmas eve and there's you know there's. There's very often uh, flooding around this time of year. And I was working with someone who may or may not now be the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And uh, we were on a phone call with Oliver Letwin and various other people about flooding. And it was about four or five o'clock on Christmas Eve. And there was a risk that hospitals might be overwhelmed with flood water and uh, energy generators and all this kind of stuff, you know, usual kind of crisis management stuff. And Jeremy Hunt very cheerfully said to Oliver Letwin, well, And he hadn't said this to me beforehand uh, and said, well, don't worry, my PPS Alex Thomas will be all over this over the course of the next 48 hours. So just get in touch with him if anything needs to be done. (laughs) I was like, thanks, Jeremy.
0: You'll definitely get Christmas Day off at the IFG, Alex. (laughs) Esther, how does 2024 begin in Westminster? Should we be expecting more uh, big speeches from the prime minister with more pledges?
2: I mean, I think it's going to start dramatically and we kind of know that already because um, immediately there will be renewed fighting and posturing over the Rwanda bill. Whether Rishi Sinak does attempt another kind of reset and try to kind of claw back the the narrative, we'll see. Um, We're also kind of expecting some of his uh, financial changes to come in early next year. So I think think from that point of view, it's certainly going to be a dramatic start to 2024 with all eyes on the question of when the election will be called. And in theory, we could know that in February next year, so potentially not long to wait.
0: You've anticipated my final question, Esther. We ask this, we're gonna ask this every week now. Um, How far (laughs) away are we from the general election, do you think?
2: I go back and forth on this, but I think at the moment I am going with May, Um, we now know that the government will have introduced some of its tax changes by then. And um, we also know that it will be very difficult for them to ask activists to go out and campaign all over again later in the year if they've had a poor performance in uh, the local elections, as the polls suggest. Um, And there are some also, I think, in the party who think the longer he delays, the more this kind of attrition happens that Alex was speaking about earlier where people are basically just looking to their own backyards and often serving the constituency when you don't think the government has a realistic chance of winning will mean diverging from the government line so that has the potential to become more and more difficult and I think all of that points to sooner rather than later
0: Alex, what about you?
1: I will, uh, partly for the sake of argument and partly because I think I slightly disagree with Esther, I'm going to go later rather than sooner, I still think autumn you know, October, November, um, possibly even tripping into December is the most likely date. Well,
0: we'll find out soon enough. Okay, I think that's it for today. Thank you to Alex Thomas, Ollie Bartram and especially to Esther Webber, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you to everyone who listened in. You can find all the Inside Briefing episodes and all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and on all major platforms. Do subscribe and please leave us a very merry review. We'll be back just before Christmas with our Year in Review podcast. And then we've got a special festive episode coming out before the new year. It's going to be really fun, isn't it, Alex?
3: Yes, it's going to be really fun. <laughs>
0: um, remember to head to our website for our COVID Live blog, all our explainers and commentary on the Rwanda plan and exciting news about our Government 2024 conference. That is going to be featuring West Streeting, Sajid Javid, Anita Bateng, Claire Ainsley, Stephen Bush, Georgia Gould, Sam Friedman and lots more. Do go to our website and sign up now. Well, that wasn't a quiet week before Christmas, but I'm sure the next one is going to be. See you then.